Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, what's going on, guys? In this episode of the podcast, I have on Monty Montepar. Uh, so Monty is the co-owner of Kennecott Wilderness Guides in Alaska, where he works during the summer, and he's a stand-up comedian in L.A. during the winter. So of all the people I've had on the podcast, Monty is probably the person in which I relate to most, uh, but didn't have confidence to go into either like stand-up comedy or like full-on wilderness guides, and he's doing them both. So I thought that was really cool, and he's super entertaining. Um, few things to get out of the way. Uh, there's a little bit of bad audio. Um, it's especially bad in like the first two minutes, but I promise it clears up and it's totally worth it. Um, there's like a blip at like minute 12. Uh, and let me just get this out there. We both have creaky desks for some reason. So, uh, so get over it. Uh, you can definitely hear the creaking back and forth. Uh, but it kind of sets the scene. I don't know. Um, so in the podcast, we talk about anxiety we talk about second-guessing choices when you have in your that you make in your youth. We talk about grappling with intense emotions and really, um, you know, extreme back and forth while traveling. We talk about like the changes he's witnessed in Alaska. He's been there for 15 years as a wilderness guide. We talk about how things have evolved and you know progressed and changed uh, in some ways good, in some ways bad. Um, we talk about doing crazy wild things that he does, like you know, ice climbing or stand-up comedy. And how that requires presence to trick yourself into really quieting overactive brain. And uh, I even get to sneak in a few selfish uh, camping tips and questions. So. And we also speak about the nonsense that is self-promotion. Uh, we both hate it. But honestly, I implore you guys, if you're listening to this, go stop right now and watch, or maybe afterwards, but watch some of his YouTube videos. Search Monty Montepar. I'll put the link in the description, but honestly, like, I don't know how he does it. He he tells these incredible stories in like three to five minutes that are packed with, you know, hilarious jokes, but also everyone seems to have an emotional crescendo. So I thought it was really impressive. Um, he does it here in the podcast as well. And as always, please like, rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff helps so much. Uh, and I hope you enjoy it. All right. So in this episode of the podcast, I speak with Monty Montipart. So Monty is a wilderness guide in Alaska during the summer and a stand-up comedian in L.A. during the winter. He first moved to Alaska when he was 19, and he's been there for the last 15 years. He's the co-owner of Kennecott Wilderness Guides. He spends his summer hiking glaciers, rock climbing, skiing, pack rafting, and doing other outdoor activities. And he spends his winter as a professional raconteur telling stories he's acquired during the summer months. So welcome, Monty. Thank you for your time. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Brian. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I started following you online uh, a couple months ago. Uh, and you've got a really cool story, really interesting story. Um, I don't want to tell it for you, but like, like definitely setting it up. Like, you dropped out of college at eight, 19, age 19, sold all of your stuff, and kind of moved to Alaska on a whim after your friend Money T told you to, that you'd be able to get a job there pretty immediately. Um, you were like living in your truck for four months. You moved to an Alaskan town of like 50 people. I mean, it sounds like a really 
really cool story. Can you walk us through that for people who haven't, you know, aren't acquainted with you? Yeah, um, I, I think you surmised it well. Um, you may have uh, grander, like made it a little grander than it than it is, but it is one of the. I think everybody's moving to Alaska story ends up being myth a little bit. You know, it is one of these larger than life uh, going to Alaska when you're young, right? And what you find is most people there have a similar version of that story of. Uh, how they came for a two-week vacation, or they first got there, and now they've been living there for 30 years. And uh, mine was out of, I was going to acting school on the East Coast in Boston, which was a total change of pace from growing up in Breckenridge, Colorado. And I was doing good in my acting classes and flailing in school. And eventually got rejected from this overseas program that I was signed up for because my grades kept going down and had to like move back home, dejected to Breckenridge and refocused my life on skiing and mountaineering. Mm -hmm. And at the time, it didn't seem that insane that we were just going to move into our trucks and all drive to Alaska on a whim. Uh, In hindsight, or the more that I go to that place, like when I travel to that town now from LA, I'm kind of retroactively patting my 19-year-old self on the back. Like, man, you were way to go, buddy. That was a move. Yeah, I mean, I uh, hey, man, at least you were passing some classes. I kind of struggled the entire time through college. Made it through, but like immediately, uh, I went to Thailand for a couple of years. Um, Started teaching, uh, came back after a few years and, and, you know, didn't look back. I kind of wish, you know, hearing your story, it sounds like pretty cool. You've made an actual career about it. Something that you're still currently doing to this day. Yeah, I, uh, I definitely didn't have, there was... I don't know. I've thought about this a lot because I, uh, my early passion was comedy. And that's that was the like middle school dream was to be a stand-up comedian, be on stage with a microphone. And it's what I did. College was sketch comedy. And I really couldn't deal with how painful it was that I felt like I'd blown that opportunity, that whole world. Huh. And uh, it... I also didn't really know how to self-regulate, how to deal with the intensity of my mind uh, and emotional state. And uh, so there was a part of me that was definitely running away, going to Alaska. And then this part that felt like a big, uh, like I had a lot to learn. I needed to put myself in some situations that were unescapable and uh, bigger I guess uh, I, there was some part of me that like knew I needed to be tested or that wanted to live yeah. a bigger life. This was also coming off of like a pretty heavy Jack Kerouac introduction <laughs> and binge. Sure. Uh, sure. We've all been <laughs> into sure. that. Like, Oh, I need to live this. I need to have, have some stories. Yep. Wow. That's interesting. You say that. Cause I, I had a hard time in school as well. And one of the things was like, well, Let's just become a collection of stories. Let's just become this, you know, someone who's done a lot of things because I'm not sure (laughs) what I can accomplish beyond this. So I went ahead and tried to do one of the craziest things I could think of, just move across the world and see if I could make it work. And it sounds like, you know, you were trying to accomplish a similar thing. 
I do. I think I needed to go somewhere where I couldn't be um, like protected by my parents and by, I grew up in a really small town and everybody knew everybody and grew up in a really loving, uh, protective home. I had uh, all the kind of town where all the jobs you got were because it was your parents friend that ran this place or that place and there's something very comforting about a place like that but it also can be uh that's the helicopter that's the we're on the helicopter path in scenic los angeles i'm not sure i haven't picked it up on the thing but (laughs) um you know there's it's it can be insulating too growing up in a such a small protected place Hmm. essentially so whether I consciously fully knew it or not, there was a part of me that needed to go and fail and have to be able to earn my own reputation. And um, there was something also uh, freeing about that too, stepping totally away, which the city was also that, but I didn't really know how to live in a city at that point in my life. All of my survival techniques were about getting in my Ford Explorer and driving down mining roads in the woods in Colorado. And there was no access to that in Boston. I didn't really know how to self-regulate without being able to get into the woods quickly. Yeah. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a very comforting place to be if you're comfortable with the woods um, versus going straight into a city. Um, who, who, like, who did you follow? Who are your big influences comedic wise? Um, comedy wise, I definitely was into Bill Hicks. Yeah. I was a punk rock kid and I was angry yeah. and that guy was like, oh man, somebody's saying it. Somebody yeah. is he's saying all the stuff. Uh, these yeah. are all the things I think are true and real about, um, some of those albums, uh, like rant in E minor was this weird collection of, he's one of those people that I discovered and then found out he's dead. It was like, great. Well, I missed that era uh, which is a weird experience to discover somebody post them passing um and but yeah i have all these vivid memories of like driving through the yukon in my truck listening to rant in e minor and just being in this big world and having the net like the actual scope of the natural world being exploded and bill hicks shining these lights into how politics actually work. And it was like, yeah, I'm escaping this system. I'm really doing it. That coupled with a bit of Kerouac will get, will do anyone in. Oh man. It was a ride for a bit, but all those mentalities definitely at some point stopped working for me. Uh, I started to realize you get to the end of the Kerouac canon. You're like, Oh, he died young and alone. And with a really heavy drug and alcohol problem. Like it didn't, it didn't end up in fulfillment. Um, And same with like some of, uh, yeah, I think that was a journey that I didn't take until later was like, was where the anti-sentiment that did send me into the wilds was keeping me from so much of the world. If I had this, I can't deal with cities. I hate cities. I hate society. Well, you're, there's a whole lot of walls you just put up. If you hate society, you're never going to see anybody. If you hate cities, you're never going to experience art and museums and culture. And yeah. uh, 
so at some, but that was, that was later at this point, I was like, yeah, Bill's right. Burn it down. I'm moving to the woods. <laughs> yep. Uh, so I've listened to a lot of, um, a lot of Anthony Bourdain and, um, um yeah, he talked about growing up like that, like reading William Burroughs, reading, you know, Hunter S. Thompson, all those kind of burn it down. Um, everyone's wrong. I'm right mentality. And I can relate to that as well. Uh, but he kind of talks about how, you know, how sad that can be or how, how really depleting and much of a dead end it can be, especially for someone who, you know, like you, you live in LA, I live in a city now. Um, you know, obviously Bourdain traveled around to different places. So there is a lot to be said about culture, but there's a time in a lot of people's lives where it doesn't feel like it can serve you. Yeah, I think it, um, I don't know. It, for me, I had to get to a better place personally to, I've always loved cities, but there was a part of me that like, it was cool to hate cities. If you're a mountain person, that's part of the persona is it's, it's cool to hate the, the machine and to really kind of cast yourself as outside of it. You know, you're existing in this mountain culture, even though they are, an extension of the larger humanity. They don't exist without, as we're seeing right now in a big way, it's being shown to us how mountain culture is not its separateness from, from the, the bigger society. Um, but yeah, it took, uh, it's hard. It was, it was hard to like accept some of those things and find like oh am i compromising my beliefs right now and it's like no i also love comedy if you want to do comedy you have to go to a place where there's comedy theaters yeah um you got to go to a place where there's an audience um but i'm glad that i spent the time when my knees were as limber as they were doing what I did with them in my twenties, I have been feeling that every once in a while where I'm like, yeah, good move. Yeah. Go get in the outdoors. <laughs> I don't think it's ever too late, but uh, I'm glad I followed that inkling at that point. There wasn't a vision of, Oh, I'm going to move to Alaska. And this is this next thing. Our only goal was we were going to climb big mountains. Mm -hmm. So it was that we were going to get to this little town and, be able to have this experience and gain glacier experience and then parlay it into climbing and skiing big mountains. But at that point, didn't have a vision of what life as a guide looked like or what a seasonal guide life looked like or what that meant. Uh, I, we really didn't have, it was pretty like wide-eyed uh, boys in the world mentality there right off the bat. Gotcha. So it was, yeah, it was, you know, we want to do this. We want to climb this mountain because it's there. Uh, beyond that, we'll figure it out. Or not even thinking to beyond that. Um, which does seem pretty liberating when you, you know, when you look back at it, I'm sure. There, uh, there were times where it was liberating and then it was also terrifying. I had all these, that first summer we were in Kennecott, uh, Money T got a job as a guide. He had been, he'd taken a training. He'd already been to Alaska. And me and my other buddy, the dingo, uh, <laughs> did not get hired as guides. They have real names, but these ones are more fun. Right, of course. And they, uh, uh, they, we did not get hired. We got a job painting. 
and but we made enough money the first month for us to take the rest of the summer off we lived in a truck we had no expenses essentially and we just went ice climbing a ton on the glacier and then we went on this giant month-long expedition that was our classic we all almost died and suffered and learned a billion things trip Mm -hmm. um and during that trip, I had some serious mental, like, what am I doing with my life? Mountaineering is terrifying. This is what we're dropping our lives to try and do. The realities of this thing that had been romanticized are really hard and yeah. really scary. And, um, oh, my God, like, we're in over our head. This is what I dropped everything to refocus my life on. Uh, I didn't have like locked in clarity in that way in the, in the mountains. And then I went and took a, a Noel semester in the Rockies after that, that next fall. Well, what semester? And that's actually how I got a national outdoor leadership school. Okay. Uh, Knowles. And that's actually, how I got like back into college. I got, I think 16 college credits that semester for outdoor leadership and, mm-hmm. Uh, I got my first wilderness first responder and I met a guy in that Knowles course that went to Western state college in Southern Colorado. And I applied there online in Moab in between backpacking sections for Knowles. And I ended up at Western state and that's where I graduated with a degree in outdoor leadership. So, uh, and still went back to Alaska every summer. So I do winters in, Gunnison and Alaska in the summer but it was this long story that each piece wouldn't have I wouldn't have gotten to each one without the step before it Mm -hmm. but it it was not a I guess I felt like I was like on the right path but it was not always comfortable it was not a wind in the hair I'm riding life the whole time there were big swings and like giant anxious filled 19 year old crashes and my life's over before it's already begun i already blew my comedy career before it even started what am i doing with my life kind of intense emotions in a giant place like having an emotional breakdown when you're on a giant valley glacier in Alaska and there literally is no escape. There's nowhere to go. You can run and scream and throw a fit, but you're still a weak walk from town. Uh, and wow. yeah, I think that was the beginning of me starting to have really uh, intense outdoor experiences and then the overlap of my emotional life and those experiences. At any point during all this, did you ever consider turning around or changing course or strongly consider giving up? Um, I think on that trip specifically, uh, like in, in general, I didn't have that feeling about going to Alaska because I felt committed to it. Once I got in my truck and was past the Canadian border, I've always been good once I'm committed. And I feel like a lot of us are. It's that feeling. I always think of it like on the side of the river, scouting the rapid or 
or standing on top of the ridge before you drop in. That's always the the most anxious, difficult part. And I have always been better once I'm in there. Once I'm committed, my brain state calms and locks in. And I think that in Alaska and when I got to the town, I was like locked into this lifestyle. And it, even though it was hard and challenging and we lived in tents, um, it wasn't until I started to zoom out again, like, am I going to finish college? What am I going to do with these weird credits that my parents have paid for that are hanging from the East Coast? Uh, And really under the belly of that was this dream to be a comedian that I was not, I didn't tell anybody in that Alaska town that that's what I used to do or that that was my past life. I completely hid it, uh, put it under the rug for about a decade, really. Um, So no, and, and on that trip though, like the, that, as a microcosm of your question of if you ever wanted to bail, that trip was the same kind of thing. Cause we got dropped off by this bush plane pilot. It's kind of a rough landing on bare ice, no snow. And he turns his plane around and tells us he's going to book a pickup. We were going to hike back out. And so that first trip had this feeling of if you want, there is no giving up, like failing is back home. You know, you're, yeah, you have options here. You can either sit here and die or continue. (laughs) And I, yeah. And and a lot of trips in that area of the Wrangles do have that kind of starkness of, Hmm. um, there are options, but one of them is completely great. Is like, yeah, you can just sit here forever, or you can keep putting one foot in front of me, or physically, where I can pull up parts of that first trip in Alaska. And I'm like, well, it's not as bad as that one moment when we were all like bleeding out of our feet and hunkering behind a boulder in a rainstorm. Um, Holy cow. So that trip, if I could have left, would have. If we... <laughs> How long was that hike out? Yeah. That trip was like 20 days long. And we got rained on for like 14 of them. And it was only out of the, probably like 25 miles out. But it was on this... Uh, ablation glacier so icy glacier with no snow on it and we had three orange sleds with us like you would pull on a snow covered glacier because we were intending to get up high uh, which we did not do so we dragged orange sleds like 20 plus miles on gravel with crampons on in the rain for days oh wow yeah (laughs) and those sleds are presumably carrying your supplies yeah totally Way too much food, ski boots, skis, peanut butter. We all had disc mints, just to give you the era of that. We had three CDs, and each of us had a disc mint that we were trading. The CDs around, and they were all like angsty punk rock, like against me. And uh, that was that was the most coveted album. Yeah. Which one is that? Pints of Guinness Make You Strong, or whatever one? Yeah, that one, the <laughs> Reinventing Act. Mm-hmm. Rose. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm sure that gave you some juice to go. <laughs> Indeed. Um, 
Uh, oh, yeah. What, what temperatures? What were the temperatures there in that time? I know you do it during the summer, but it was raining, but I'm still imagining it was pretty cold in Alaska. That was, that was, we did that trip in August, and we were, our intention was to try and climb this 16,000 foot peak that you can see from town, or at least try and get up on the sub peaks. And, but we got dropped off at like 5,000 feet. Everybody in town with experience told us not to do this in August. Because you would just get rained on and you're kind of, you're in the mixed area between the good, like summer, all the snow's melted and it's starting to snow again up high. And so for that trip, the issue was rain, that it was like mixed temperatures and weird snow in between. Um, So like 40 degrees and raining which okay. is kind of a joke that it can be 40 degrees and raining any day of the year in Alaska. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was, it was more like a wet, and we didn't really, we weren't seasoned enough to know exactly how to deal with those specific circumstances. We camped on the ice for a lot of it, and we'd get into these places where our bodies would melt down little divots in the ice from our body heat. Oh, wow. Um so it was like, you, when we move our tent, our tent had protected the glacier. So there'd be like a foot tall pedestal, but it would have these three divots in it uh. from where the three of us had been sleeping in this, like a weird jello mold or something. I see what you're saying, because the rain on the other sides, on all sides of the tent would kind of bring it down. But your body heat would also... And melt the ice. Weird. Totally. The sun and rain would melt the ice around us, and then our body heat was melting our little sleeping spot. Do you use a, um, or at least on that trip, do you guys use inflatable uh, pads under you? I just went camping, and it was quite cold, and didn't have one of those, and realized those help a lot. I'm, I'm a big fan on cold trips of having two pads. Having one... Can you hear the weed whacker outside, by the way? I can. It's fine. <laughs> From a helicopter to a weed whacker. We're right. hitting it. We're getting them all today, Brian. <laughs> helicopter right. weed whacker, welcome to my suburban Los Angeles nightmare. <laughs> um, yeah, I recommend for cold weather camping, having two pads, having a foam pad that isn't inflatable, and then an inflatable pad. Okay. And because the inflatable pad is nice but it can just be air. So if you've still got cold ground and then this air layer, Mm. uh, you can still get, you're still asking your body essentially to heat that air underneath in that pad. So if you have a foam pad and an insulated pad for cold weather camping, then I'll throw that foam pad down on the ground and the insulated pad on top and uh, you're insulating that air pocket from the ground, which is where you're really losing all your heat. Gotcha. Yeah, good point. I had a, I had a, what I thought was a really nice um, sleeping bag, uh, but because I just had a foam pad, um, I was, pr- it was pretty thin, so it was pretty much right on the ground. Uh, so it was yeah, you were having the like, you wake up with one hip is numb, and then you roll over onto the other hip and sleep <laughs> until that hip goes numb, yep. and then yeah. go straight for a little while and like tense your butt till the bottom of your butt gets numb. And <laughs> I've done that dance. I know that. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm well acquainted. Yeah, and then the sun comes up, and you're like, oh, I get it. I get why most cultures on Earth worship that thing. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> 
Um, well, yeah, so how did you go from, you know, a town of 50 people in Alaska? You said for about a decade you were there, still with this desire to do stand-up. You're acquiring stories this entire time. At, like, what point did you start going to L.A. for the winters um, to, to do stand-up? Yeah, I started to visit. Um, I have a cousin who's a stand-up comedian in Los Angeles. And, um, man, that was almost 10 years ago now. So I was still living in Alaska full-time. But I would travel and rock climb during the fall. So it was after a trip in Yosemite. I spent like a month in Yosemite. And then I came to LA for the first time to see what it actually was. And I was in this period of starting to attack some of my preconceived notions a little bit more aggressively that, yeah, I never could do comedy. If, if it's true that I hate cities and can't deal with cities, then all of these other things also must be true. I can't do stand-up comedy then. So yeah. I came to visit my cousin and the neighborhoods he lived in, I kind of dug and it wasn't exactly what I thought LA was going to feel like. Hmm. And um i start i like went and investigated what open mics here were like and i hadn't done that in a really long time and then i went back to a lot it took a couple years i'd say of then i would come and visit and i treat doing comedy in la how i had treated recreational trips up until that point i pretty much treated comedy like it was rock climbing and i was on a month-long climbing dirt bag i was like i know how to dirt bag i know how to live in my car i know how to like go on a month-long climbing trip and get on get as many routes in as i can and i just took that mentality and applied it to my month-long comedy trips gotcha and uh was like oh this is actually easier the weather's always good there's always an open mic the conditions are always on um and then, but it took why it took until my world exploded until I got divorced and had a giant blow up uh, that is that moth story that you found me through. Um, it took something of that magnitude to blow me out of my life in McCarthy and Kennecott. I was hunkered in there, like I had a business and was married and. The vision that I had, if you would have talked to me then, was having kids, living half the time there, half the time in Anchorage. It was a life mm. in Alaska. And in the explosion of all of this, I started to really deeply ask myself, like, what do I want to do with this opportunity that is a blank slate at 30 years old? And even though it was really painful, I was keenly aware of that. Um, and I'd say from that experience when I was 19 that we were talking about where I got, I got failed from a specific professor failed me in sociology in Boston. And that's why I couldn't go to this foreign studies program and I couldn't deal with that failure. I just was like, I'll pretend like I never wanted to be a comedian and never tell anybody about this ever again and go to Alaska and found this whole other incredible life. But the running part was like, I'm not going to deal with this. But what I learned was that when that big painful, the rug getting pulled from underneath your feet thing 
opens that it is a giant life opportunity. Mm. And that this time I actually had that awareness to make some moves. I wasn't just 19 and going to like throw my middle fingers in the air and on some level got dumb lucky that I ended up in this magical town in Alaska. Mm. I was like, I have more agency now. I know what this painful reset could be if I can follow it. So that was the, I'm going to go for it and try and be a stand-up comedian uh, moment. And I moved back to Denver, which is where my ex and I actually got divorced. We were both from Colorado originally. And then I like dove in to improv classes and doing stand-up and got connected with this scene in Denver. And I'd already had friends in LA from my time in Boston, like 12 years earlier, oh, wow. the year and a half I spent there and started to reconnect those worlds. And then I moved here. I had a friend from college in Boston who called me and had a room. So I ended up moving in with someone from my sketch team from Boston from when I was 18, from before my entire existence in McCarthy, Alaska. Wow. Uh, it's kind of where my comedy world restarted in LA. Wow, you are right. The way it kind of comes together, like a, like a you know scavenger hunt, like everything just kind of builds upon itself. First, you have to do this, and you do this, then go back to this part. You know, meet this person you met twelve years ago. Just going to happen to you know come across you in your life and really help you out. Like that's that's really amazing the way that worked out. It is. There have been these moments of insane. Uh, like currently in LA, a very good friend of mine. She's a very successful comedian at uh, the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. And we went to school together, like childhood elementary school. And then middle school, high school, we both graduated. We both went to separate East Coast colleges that we flame out of. I go to Alaska. She goes back home without communicating. We both end up at Western State College in Gunnison, Colorado, this little school in the middle of nowhere in their theater program, doing theater together all through college. After college, I continue Alaska. She follows this track that brings her to the UCBLA. Her best friend there that she meets in Sacramento ends up dating this guy who was my friend from college in Emerson. 18 years before so when we hang out now like the four of us at a table anywhere the layers of connection over decades and different places is uh my it's it is like hard you need like a napkin to right. draw out how everybody's connected through these different points in time and i do think when you're in places like there you're like yep i'm back I'm back on the trail, baby. You know that moment? And you're like, I've been on this social trail. I don't know if this is really it. And then you're like, this is the good travel. I'm back on it. Boom, Here I yeah. am. Here's my tribe. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, that is wild. And you were mentioning just a little bit earlier about like, you know, the emotionals. You've got a lot while you do stand up. You also tell a lot of, you know, frankly, pretty emotional stories in, in The Moth. And I think the other one was like, truth be told, Boulder really cool, really powerful. Um, like, do you find a lot of that comes through the reflection that you have in nature, like being able to codify those stories and being able to really tell them uh, and crystallize them in your mind? 
Um, because I, you know, oftentimes find that nature allows for that pretty powerful reflection. Yeah, I think nature is definitely where I go to write. That is where it like comes out of me. Um, pretty much all those stories have been written from some little nook in nature, under a tree, on a rock, sitting somewhere. And from that peace and bigger vision that comes just from being in nature is easier to access those memories. And then uh, it's almost sometimes where I have to hold back on it because all my metaphors are in the outdoor world. They are all so entrenched in uh, those experiences. And I think that they lend themselves to it because they're such physical and emotional experiences and the way that we really remember things is with our emotions. Mm-hmm. So it, it's why those experiences in the outdoor do stand out so brightly because they are intense emotional experiences. Um, so when you collect a bunch of those, you do. Anytime you have these life experiences, it just pops up in your emotional file cabinet like, quarantine immediately i was like oh yeah we're on a 14 day mountaineering trip and it's going to snow for the next we don't know how long mm. like that's what this mm. feeling is gotcha um been talking to friends where i'm like oh yeah this feels like when you're bushwhacking and there's not really a good way to get through here and we could side hill this way or we could bash through the bushes they're both gonna suck um do you want to get hit in the face or you want to twist your ankles uh like what <laughs> you know there's yeah. And when you've had those experiences, there's the, you can feel it in you when somebody says that, like, yeah, that's what that feeling is. So I think nature is, to go, like, to answer your question, I use it in both those ways. It is how I've rooted and learned a lot of emotional experiences. It's been my basis for it. It's been my experiences in nature. And then it's also where I find it's easy to actually access it. Hmm. Um, and to, um, to like listen to myself and process more. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which can be hard, you know, when you have constant distractions or when you are, you know, running away from something, it's a little bit harder to access that, that type of emotion. Um, so between your, your job in the summer, like rock climbing, skiing, you're talking about bush plane camping, which for people who don't know is kind of what it sounds is when you get dropped off with the bush plane and they fly away <laughs> and they either come back and yep. pick you up. But it sounds like a lot of times they say, Hey, you have to hike X amount of miles back. Um, between all that. And then you also have the stand up. So you do a lot of things that make people incredibly nervous. I'm wondering if you like mentally prepare or go to a similar place before doing any of these things, or is it just kind of, you know, something you're naturally good at? Uh, I think, no, it isn't. I don't think I would classify myself as naturally good at many of those things. Um, I was always a performer. I was always that kid that was performing. If my parents had three people over for dinner, it was like I could sense an audience and it was time to put on a show. So that's actually always been a more comfortable space for me on stage than in a room that doesn't have a defined relationship. And uh, guiding is a similar thing, actually. It's, 
I'm your guide. You're my guest. You're my client. Like we already have a baseline to put this relationship in and then we can build it as opposed to just meeting somebody just and having no framework at all. Um, I, I I'm more like tenuous in that setting, you know, like going to recently I've been hosting uh, events for the American Alpine club and at the URA ice festival. Oh, nice. And at those kind of events, I was always like a wallflower would be in the back, quiet, not really mingling, wouldn't talk to that many people, but I'm more comfortable being in front as my job, as the MC, telling jokes, hyping the whole place up. Like the first time that I did it for the AMGA, I told a bunch of jokes about how uncomfortable I was to be there and how resistant I'd been to their organization for the last decade, which is stuff that I never would have, that I just would have kind of like, kept to myself yeah, and yeah. stayed awkward with and yeah. it was like oh no i get to say it in front of everybody like i'm more comfortable actually in that space um and i think that in terms of the outdoor stuff it is kind of what i was saying with the uh i'm better once committed is i have for whatever reason found these activities that force focus i do have an overactive brain that's going constantly and all of those activities, climbing, skiing, being on stage, performing, demand that you are there. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's almost easier to just be there than it is to do anything else. It's just like that fear that you're talking about, the nerves. I think there's a comfort for me because it shuts up and slows down the whole system out of like stark need to like you gotta shut up you're on stage right now um skiing the steep shoot turns off the to-do list in the same way that doing stand-up does that's really interesting yeah the way you say it like requires presence requires you to be there and be mindful of what you're doing in some instances your life might be in the line so you can't really be daydreaming about something else and another time you're you know, you're going off that active communication with the crowd. So there's really no time where you can, you know, if you're doing it right, where your mind can really wander, you can, you know, you can actually actively silence it. I call it tricking myself into meditation sometimes. That's what like going bouldering, which I realized during this pandemic period, I'm like, oh man, I can't trick my, I might actually just have to meditate. I can't trick myself yeah, yeah. into that state by going on this bouldering hike walk and then kind of end up on my pad and bring myself into a meditation. Like I'm actually just going to have to do this. <laughs> yeah. How are, how are you handling that? Like we were talking about before we, you know, before we started recording, but like the things you do involve either being outside or involve being around people right now you're inside, you're in LA, you're not, you know, presumably you're not performing in front of a live audience. How are you handling things right now? How is that for you? I think I'm at a period right now where I'm starting to make some what feel like positive moves. I think initially it was just shock. Uh, the They shut down. I'm an improviser at the Upright Citizens Brigade in Los Angeles, and they shut the theater down. And then pretty quickly they laid off all the workers and then just last week, they actually shut down their New York theater for good. 
And as each of those things continue to turn, um, I was booked to do a moth storytelling show in New York and that got canceled. And then the moth is doing virtual shows and the last kind of like the current order is the mayor in LA is anticipating no live shows for a year. And if they do exist, they're going to be weird. You know, it's going to be, uh, so that has been gut wrenching, you know, just hit. And, and as each, each one of those kind of nails makes it actually real. Um, and then I have just started to feel that feeling that I talked about earlier in our discussion, that this is one of the places I've always struggled is online. I'm not comfortable online. I'm not comfortable putting my voice out there. I'm more comfortable in person. And it does make me squirm in the same ways that like cities made me squirm and that all these things, um, so I am feeling the uncomfortable opportunity that this thing is to uh, I am like posting things on social media makes me really anxious. And I have a bunch of these videos that I've judged as not good enough. The audio is not good enough. The joke has gotten better, but I don't have a tape of the better version of the thing. Right. And I finally got out of my way and put something up the other day, just some jokes from like the Bishop Craig. And I immediately got just like people who uh, it makes me really happy that they were, that they laughed at this thing, you know? And so in terms of the live comedy thing, I am trying, I'm at the beginning of starting to see the positive push on this is that there are outlets that I have been uncomfortable in and there is a learning opportunity here uh, if I can grab it because live comedy like will be back at some point. Um, But no, that, that is a rabbit hole. That's not worth me investigating is the like, when will it be back? When can I start making money again, telling stories? Uh, That's one that I just don't, that I can immediately, the red buzzer goes off. It's like, you don't have enough information to go into this rabbit hole unless you want to get lost down here. Um, And then guiding has been a day to day talking with my business partners. Uh, The main, Dates keep changing. I've got two webinars in the next week with the American. It looks like, and nobody knows at this point what this summer is going to look like, what it's going to look like in different places for different modalities of guiding. Uh, lots of questions about whether it's going to be even functionally safe to do it. And then the other question is, is it going to be such a hindrance of the experience for everybody to be in masks or so far away that it's just not the same quality. Right. Um, Right. Yeah. I didn't even, obviously I was thinking about, you know, how difficult it'd be for comedy, but you know, also for the, the trail guiding as well. Um, But then, yeah, even if it does open up, who's to say it's going to have that same openness, that same, experience free of restraint um thing i think that's more real like uh, us going out on our own as individuals more and more this summer that seems like a very it's the next level of a of a company or an industry 
taking people out that then it start you start talking about having people having to wear masks their whole hikes with yeah. each other in the wilderness on a glacier uh which is tough to reconcile with what the intended experience is anyway to begin with yeah it's supposed to be liberating and freeing yeah and you're gonna have this reminder of the pandemic we're all gonna have one you know we're gonna have our little our mask collection uh so yeah those things have been I don't know, the place that it has felt to like for to go for uh, little walks, we have a place where we can get out and stay socially distanced and throw the ball for our dog. Um, I have a little succulent garden. Nice. I am. I am like a little nature. If I if I can find this little bit of nature, I like <laughs> I will use it. Uh, we got these little plants. I sit right there next to them. Let the green life live uh, but yeah i've been daydreaming about alaska i've been having this time of year is when the day the kennecott day, like daydreams come up and we just had a yeah. fully staffed guide service until everything started getting closed and um and it was a big put the brakes on and no one really exactly knows how to move forward in that in that that town has specifics because it's a it's not just a recreation destination it's a small community um, and it's within a national park and the roads owned by the state. So it's always been a management nightmare in right, many yeah. ways. And now all those things are just intensified yeah. to their rarest form. It's tough to make it feel once again, you know, we want to go out there to feel free and it is hard to like, have that have the feeling of doing stuff currently yeah um so provide you know barring everything that's happening now what is the typical day or is there a typical day for a trail guide like what what things can people do uh when they go with kwg um are like are pretty much glaciers we are glacier guide service we got and we only operate in the summer and so we take people on glacier hikes and ice climbing on that same glacier, which is pretty unique to go get to go ice climbing when it is generally warm summertime in Alaska as opposed to winter elsewhere. And then we do pack rafting day trips, which are these inflatable one person boats that are also that trips on the toe of the glacier. So it's also very much like a glacier exploration. And then we do a bunch of flying backcountry trips, big point-to-point uh, -point flying with a bush plane, hike across the trailless Wrangell Mountains to another bush plane pickup and get picked up. And that's kind of what the Wrangell Mountains are in the adventure community really known for is its big traverses. It's uh, the biggest national park in the country and there are really no trails. So it's just raw land. Wow. What's the scale of, of trips that people take? What's the you know scale with, with either distance or with height for ice climbing? Yeah, we do. You know, the day that that half day glacier hike is like four and a half hours. That's the bread and butter. Uh, families, pretty accessible. Uh, it is still like seven miles of hiking, so it is still a hike no matter what round trip. And then we do big, like ten day point-to-point backcountry trips 
miles in the wrangles are funny because a lot of like five day backpacking trips will be 25 miles long hmm. we'll have a lot of people that are used to the sierras or the rockies and if they're used to five day trips that are three times that long or longer and after the first two days they get it it just <laughs> the lack of trails makes it we don't talk about things in miles as much as time gotcha and, Oh, this is going to be an eight-hour day. But if we tell you how many miles it is, you're not going to believe us up front. And then it's going to be really disheartening yeah. uh, afterwards, actually. Uh, so, yeah. Is that because a lot of, like, terrain or vegetation or both? Like, what, what is what's making things a lot longer? Uh, or because there's no paths or trails? The combination of the terrain and the no trails. You really... Uh, we're always like looking for good walking. Mm -hmm. we, we spend a lot of time in the Wrangell Mountains and you learn how to walk in a whole other... You think of walking as an art form after some time in the Wrangell Mountains because there are so such a lack of flat surfaces. You realize how manicured our walking surfaces are in the rest of the world, how much they always are made for it to be flat, uh, and how trails are, if there's a side hill, there's a trail that you don't have to deal with that side hill or a switchback or loose rock. And the lack of that is exhausting on people's bodies because there are all these little proprioceptors and stabilizing muscles that you don't need if you just walk on flat stuff your whole life. Hmm. And then it's mentally exhausting because you have to look where your foot's going almost every step until you get it all put together which takes a like a decent amount of wrangle mountain off trail walking huh. when you can be kind of flowing down the scree slope without having to look at every single footstep uh, usually like the first two days of my backpacking trip teaching people how to walk they usually look at me pretty weird right off the bat. And then once again, after like the third day, they're like, oh, oh my God, that guy just taught me how to walk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's things we've just been telling people forever and people don't believe it until you get on the ground out there. It's just an experience that you don't get hiking. It just feels different than backpacking on a trail um, for all those reasons. Yeah. That's wild. Uh, my wife and I just got back. Um, we just did uh, our honeymoon in Uganda, which was really cool. We wanted to see the the mountain gorillas. And that's pretty much what we were doing the whole time was like bushwhacking through. And the hike can take anywhere between an hour and eight hours because you're not really sure where they are. Uh, and it's kind of like what you're talking about. Like you didn't, we didn't hike for that long or that far, but it was kind of long. And also like you were exhausted because the whole time you're looking for them, the whole time you're trying to keep your balance as you're searching for these gorillas or as you're trying to make sure you don't fall and break your leg and ruin the entire trip. So I definitely know how that is. Yeah, your body's, yeah, like high tension or you're like body tension and kind of doing a weird uh, obstacle course probably the whole time too and like trying to be quiet and... <laughs> You get addicted to it, too. Then after you spend a while out there, you're like, the movement that that place induces, mm -hmm. you, uh, you like, want it. And you start to talk about, like, oh, that's that real nice kind of this, or, you know, that short willow bushes, or um, that 50-degree black dirt, you know? That stuff's really good. 
Yeah, and also again, I'm sure it forces your hand with you know mindfulness and not really counting. All right, well we've got to do X amount of miles today, or we you know we need to walk this amount of time. Um, really, just kind of being mindful of distance you're going or how far you're actually traveling. Definitely. Um, so you talked about this a little bit earlier, but you know you've been doing it for 15 years. You've been a travel guide for 15 years. What um, what changes have you seen in Alaskan wilderness in that amount of time? Like, I remember reading just this summer, there was a couple of days in the summer that temperatures were over 100 degrees, which are unheard of in Alaska, um, which sounds yeah. pretty scary. So is that something you've witnessed firsthand? Yeah, definitely. Um, it was, yes, it was very hot last summer, and there were big fires, and it felt apocalyptic up there uh, at times. In general, it's just gotten busier. It has gotten busier every single year that I've been there. That little town, I grew up in Breckenridge, Colorado, mm -hmm. so I've seen little mountain towns blow up. And the little town McCarthy and Kennecott is slower to blow up because it's so far from Anchorage. It's like an eight-hour drive there. And there are less services, and it's not a year-round place. But in general, tourism in Alaska has gotten busier and busier every season. And it has gotten warmer. And the season's extended, where September used to be really very slow. And now it's pretty busy almost all the way or like definitely through mid-September uh, where we're now doing more backpacking trips and there's little things like the glacier trail the trail to the glacier gets more and more used every year and how it feels as a trail feels more used you know you know how a trail it doesn't feel like walking up Angel's Landing in Zion mm -hmm. but it feels more walked than it did. And same with like the popular backcountry camping destined places. You know, you still, if you're seeing them for the first time, you wouldn't see it. But I know what though, like that it is a little bit more beaten that these camping sites look a little bit more worn in than they did. Um, and then on the other hand, it's become a place where you can actually have a business there's a lot more people my age who have a kid who are able to live there whereas when i got there in my 20s it was smaller the economy was smaller it's gone from a town where you used to get paid to watch people's cabins to now where you can't find a rental cabin and if you do it's like a pretty competitive rental market, actually. Hmm. So that's happened in 10 years. It went from like sleepy, hey, I'll pay you 20 bucks to watch my cabin and you can have some chicken eggs to no, my cabin's $300 a month and there's no running water. But good luck finding it somewhere else. Yeah, I've been reading a lot about people, um, you know, uh, in addition to trailing, but also doing a lot of um, salmon fishing and about how that has really blown up in the past few years. Like you can't, you're kind of arm to arm, whereas, or shoulder to shoulder, whereas years ago, you would have the entire stream of river to yourself. It's just, it's, it's nice to know that people are appreciating nature, you know, the way I would want, but it's also, you know, hopefully we can keep this pace. So nature remains nature. Yeah, I think that, 
you know, it follows similar trends in all these places. And it does. It feels like Idaho and Alaska and Montana, like those areas around some of those cities are feeling some of the growing pains that the front range of Colorado felt a decade ago. You know, like they are similar trajectories of population growth. And as these people, places grow, people that look for the smaller places move. And, um, you know, so those are, I think that they are they're issues that follow everywhere. And I think that accepting them and finding like productive ways to move forward is key because a lot of those towns, the mentality is just to hate that it's happening. And uh, there is a certain acceptance of reality of the double-edged sword of growth and especially growth, growth in a tourist town. Right. Can't hate the people that are coming there and still live off of them without there being some moral uh, <laughs> loophole. Right. Yeah. So, like, how uh, you know? I know we're, there's no stand-up right now. I know you're kind of at a standstill, also with these tours. Uh, but where can people at least follow some of your comedy, whether it's you know stuff you've done in the past or stuff you're currently doing? Um, and like, where can people find out? When Kennecott Wilderness Guides will open up, whether it's this year, at what point? You can find, I've got a bunch of moth stories up on my YouTube page, which is just Monty Montepar, M-O-N-T-E-M-O-N-T-E-P-A-R-E on YouTube. And that's also my handle on Instagram and Facebook. And I am going to try and put some more dumb stuff up and some (laughs) clips. Uh, I got a... Got a real, I've been doing some funny stuff with some puzzles. Um, and yeah, so that's where you can find my stuff. And then KennecottGuides.com is the Kennecott Wilderness Guides website. Um, so go check it out for this summer or just get some big old dreams in your head for summers to come. Yeah. Yeah. And Monty, I completely understand like the impulse to not want to promote yourself. Like I've got that in spades, but allow me to do that for you because your, your moth videos in particular, but so many, I think every single one of your videos has gotten a really strong, in addition to being hilarious, I got a really strong emotional side to them, which is what drove me to you in the first place. I really appreciated the fact that you were, you know, super honest, but also really, you know, able to distill a really powerful and really big emotion into you know sometimes three or six minutes so really impressive stuff i i'm a huge fan anyways oh thank you so much brian yeah absolutely so you know if and when you you post more stuff i'll be all over it um and yeah thank you so much for your time i really appreciate this we will 100 percent have to do it again sounds good i'm in thanks for joining if you like that episode feel free to rate view and subscribe that actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog, don'tforgetyourboots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time. Take care.